0: communicating uncomfortable truths can be particularly challenging and doing it in a loving way is tremendously challenging. You know, one of the most difficult things I ever had to do was to let someone go who wasn't performing. It wasn't pleasant for that individual. It wasn't pleasant for me. Even though in the moment of that decision having to be communicated, I tried to communicate to them how they could grow, areas of growth, and offer them opportunities, You know, offer them resources that they could use to you know gain the growth that they needed to gain. So much to a degree that I actually ended up calling that person maybe six months to a year later to check their availability for the same type of position that I had let them go from earlier. Because I'd heard that, you know, they had been working other jobs and they had grown from that place and had now been, you know, performing that position successfully. If no one ever tells you where you need to improve, how do you how do you know? Uh, I think from a leadership standpoint, I just think it's important for people to feel like there aren't any barriers. Uh, I'm a very direct and honest person, all the time, and I know this is an area where people don't like that, um, but I, I think it's. It's better to always be honest on the front end of a discussion, a relationship, because that actually builds a good structure, a good foundation. It takes a lot of patience to find common ground um, with a two and a three year old and it's definitely taught me a lot about negotiating skills and, um, (laughs) you know, just trying to get to the common goal of dinner. That's simple, simple things. It's what makes it fun and it makes it. Worth it,
1: you know?
2: I work for a news show and the truth is, you know, required, it's necessary, and it's the standard we set for the stories we tell. And there are so many times when a story might sound better or look better if we just bent the truth ever so slightly or we edited a little bit or or manipulated the setting just even a touch, but we're a news show and we're not telling the truth and we're not giving straight facts and telling a story exactly how it occurred then we're not doing our job and we're also not doing what's right and not doing what God wants us to do.
1: If the reason for truth is to help and progress and make sure that everyone is in alignment then it it has a good and 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 God centered nature of bringing that truth to the table. If The motivation for that truth is really to tear down and cause strife and grief, then you really need to think about your motivations.
0: Only when we listen to the truth of the people who are following us can we really um, get at the core of what the organization needs to do to get better. Um, We can solicit feedback to really strive for excellence and make ourselves better. So being able to give truth is important, but also being able to receive truth is equally or more important.
1: In the design world, somebody's idea of something being beautiful (laughs) and and it's going to work in this environment could be totally off from what a client thinks. But what's important is to always have those lines of communication open to find that common ground. Um, And and in employees, it's the same thing. Our folks wanted to have summer hours uh, at the company, so I was like, okay, I was not all for it in the beginning and so I started speaking and um, we brought everybody up and started having discussions and we found common ground so four days a week the factory is closed on Fridays now this summer um, they're working 10-hour days on Mondays through Thursday and believe it or not the productivity level seems to have increased we got happier employees it was an idea that I had never thought of um, and and it's it's turned into something really nice and a nice benefit uh, for the folks at at the company.
2: Well, so glad all of you are here, and um, I've been really gratified over these last few weeks by the response that that, uh, we're getting to all things The Hospitable Leader. I received an email this week from a businessman um, who told me, and I wish I could just read the whole email because it's really so well written, but told me about specific changes he's making in his company as a result of interacting with with the book and sitting through the series. Um, He's set up a whole new regimen of meetings with the people who work for him to talk to them about their dreams and to speak truth back and forth in ways that's stimulating growth in both himself and the individuals he's leading and in the company. He's redecorating his offices to create an environment of beauty and to create a space that feels more like home to his employees. And uh, the other thing he said, which speaks to next week's message, is he said he's become absolutely convinced that he has a moral obligation to have more fun that his approach in the past as a young business owner was that if he had too much fun, that it would create an environment in the office that wouldn't be good. And he said he's come, become convinced through reading The Hospitable Leader that he's completely wrong and that one of the most important things he can do as a leader is be happy. And I love the idea that that kind of thing is going on through hundreds and hundreds of people, both here and then many thousands of people around the country who are purchasing the book and we're you know, spreading positive influence in ever-widening circles in ways that really matter in our day-to-day lives. And I'm excited by that, I'm grateful for that. The only problem with this email I received from this business owner is it's clear that he cheated because he, he, he read ahead because several of the things that he said he's doing are things that I haven't talked about yet. and uh, But nonetheless, some of them have a lot to do with what we're going to discuss today in Welcome 4. Welcome 4 of 5. Next week will be the last week of the Hospitable Leader Series. But Welcome 4 is about communication. And I just want to jump right in. There's a lot to cover, and uh, I've organized my my. Uh, message today in a very, very simple, and frankly, not real creative way, but it will help us get to the point as quickly as possible, and hopefully there'll be some, some creativity in it. So today, I just want to talk about three thoughts on hospitable communication. And the first thought is this, that hospitable leaders want to do what they do in collaboration with others. We have to emphasize here the word want. That's what I want to focus on. Hospitable leaders want to do what they do in collaboration with others. Now, there's a big God picture here that provides a a biblical and, I think, life principle context for this statement. So, it's important to know that human beings exist because of God wanted people to join him in community and collaborate with him in his work. God created people in his image and tasked them to partner with him in carrying out his mission. God did not need people. He did not need people because he is completely happy and sufficient in himself. He created human beings because he wanted to do what was in his heart to do in the company of people. He invited people into the community of his three-in-one self because he wanted, if you please, to expand the team. He wanted people to join him in his work. He found pleasure in people and still does even with all the challenges that people bring. So, A lot of times what what people emphasize in the creation of humanity is that God wanted community. Well, God already had community in himself. He invited more people into the community, and community is an important part of it. But the other part of it that people, I think, frequently miss is that God wanted collaboration. He wanted to work with people, people with free wills, independent thoughts, hearts that needed to be engaged People who would collaborate with him in doing what he wanted done on this planet. I mean, check out Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Question Did God need people? to help him govern this planet? It's a rhetorical question, right? Because the answer is obvious. No, God didn't need people, but he wanted to do what was in his heart to do in the company of other people. He wanted to collaborate with people. When our eldest son, Caleb, was uh, two to three years old, Sharon said this morning it was two and a half, he wanted to pretty much do whatever I was doing. This is not uncommon for children of that age, correct? And so uh, we captured video one spring of uh, the first lawn mowing session of the spring, uh, and um, he wanted to cut the grass with me so badly that we bought him a little fake you know, lawn mower that he called his MoMo. Now. I'm going to show this to you not to just show you how cute our kids were and are, but I'm going to ask you to endure about two minutes of family video to make the point that I want to make here, okay? All right, so, so you ready? Can, can you take watching somebody else's home videos for just a minute? All right, check this out just for a minute. You also are going to be stunned by my appearance all those years ago. That's our daughter, Summer.
1: Step to the side, Summer.
2: Our son, Caleb. Yeah. What are you doing, Caleb? My dad. Um, my hey. I can't see. Hey. Show mommy how you, how you do it. Show her. No. T- tell her what this is.
1: Momo. Your momo? Okay. Yeah. Tell her who that little girl is right
2: there. Who's that?
0: Daddy's Momo.
1: He doesn't understand what you're saying. I uh, Daddy. i uh, a Momo. Oh,
2: Daddy's Momo? Okay.
1: My momo. You're Momo, yeah. Okay. You ready?
0: Wait no wearing. Watch
1: winter. watch, watch, so. watch out, Simon. somebody. Somebody
2: else is I'll come and watch your video sometime too. No, no, Terry, if she would ride that off of that. Oh. (laughs) Okay, buddy. (laughs) I probably didn't hear.
1: Be careful with him standing behind you.
2: So here's a question. Did I need him to help me cut the grass? No. But do you think I wanted him to help me cut the grass? Absolutely. I didn't need him, but I wanted him. Here's my point. God chose you to join with him in his work, even though in comparison to God, we're like a two-year-old kid pushing a fake lawnmower. He didn't need us, but he wanted to do what he was going to do on this planet with us. But God, thank, thank both of you, God, God actually gave us meaningful things to do. Now again, our ability to do a thing in comparison with God's ability to do a thing pales in infinite comparison, right? But he still wants us. He gets as big a kick by you being involved in his work as I got from having my little boy want to cut grass with me even though his lawnmower didn't work. This instinct to want to do what we do in the company of those we love is an instinct that comes from God. But God actually does give us meaningful work. Our lawnmowers, to some extent, work. He wants to do what he wants to do in company with you. He made it so that you really do help him. He chose you to mentor that, that, that kid at the YMCA residence for the homeless. He chose you to coach those kids on the Little League team. He chose you to lead a life team that moves the mission of the church forward. He chose you to represent him as chairman of the board. He chose you to run for office so that somebody in power would use influence in moral ways. Now, I make this point to then say that as leaders, we should learn from God that we should follow this instinct to do what we want to do in collaboration with others, even with all the complications people bring. This is part of the God instinct. Now... We not only need to think about wanting to do what we do in company with people, but we have to start by acknowledging that we actually need other people. And this is the way that God created us to be able to be successful. We have to do what we do in proper coordination with other people. The Apostle Paul nailed this when 2,000 years ago he talked about how that this organism called the body of Christ doesn't work well if people are just thinking in a, I'm just going to take care of it myself mentality. We can't take care of it ourselves. We have to do what we do in coordination and collaboration with others. Paul wrote to the Romans, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, and he essentially goes on to make the point that in order for what all of us are together to function properly, each of us have to find our place in the context of everyone else, and everyone else. Else's gifts, and only when we do that can we move in a way that accomplishes the mission of Jesus on this earth. I think we can extrapolate from that lessons into whatever our leadership domain is, whatever team we're leading or are on, whatever business we're building. We need to not, to not think of ourselves too highly. We're always thinking about who else we can get to join the team because we know that other people bring gifts that we need in order for our gifts to be used as they were intended to be used. There's a lot of research that's been done about this recently. And of course, I I love the, 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 the social science research that's become so prevalent in the last few decades because it always points to the wisdom of Scripture. It's like You know, the New Testament said that 2,000 years ago, and now you're coming along and proving, you know, what we always knew to be true. But Sean Acor uh, is one of the leading happiness researchers in the world, and he started to connect individual happiness to the potential of a person and the potential of an entity. And here's part of what he wrote in his recently released book, Big Potential. He wrote, As the research begins to emerge, We seem to be learning that almost every attribute of your potential, from intelligence to creativity to leadership personality pardon me, from intelligence to creativity to leadership to personality and engagement is interconnected with others. Thus, to truly thrive physically, emotionally, and spiritually, we need to change our pursuit of potential. We need to stop trying to be faster alone and start working to become stronger together. So, we need other people to be success, to be successful... But we need to move from just kind of begrudgingly knowing we need other people to reach our potential and move to a more godlike position where we're saying we want other people in order to be successful. In other words, even if I didn't need to build a team, I'd try to find an excuse to build a team because I don't want to do what I've been called to do by myself, even if I could. You understand? This is we want... To be doing what we do in collaboration with others. And, and so a hospitable leader begins with this posture. There's an understanding that a hospitable leader is going to be building community and, and, and trying to do what they do in collaboration with others. That's my first thought today. Here's my second thought: it's it's about the importance then of communication to doing things in community with others and in collaboration with others. Hospitable leaders understand that healthy community and collaboration require hospitable communication. The most important part of doing what we do in concert with others is... Effective communication. Stephen Covey very famously said in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People communication is the most important skill in life. I mean, this is big. Communication is the most important skill in life. and You know the word communication and the word community have the same root word uh, because one cannot happen effectively without the other. So in The Hospitable Leader, I propose a new way of thinking about communication, a new lens to look at communication through. I call it hospitable communication. And I define hospitable communication like this. Hospitable communication is the reciprocal sharing. In other words, it's back and forth. Hospitable communication is the reciprocal sharing of who we really are and what we really think in loving environments and in loving ways to promote one another's growth. So I'll say it again. I never, I have not mastered the art of brevity anywhere, including the, the way that I define things. Hospitable communication is the reciprocal sharing of who we really are and what we really think in loving environments and in loving ways to promote one another's growth. Now, I dig into this in great detail in the book. I want to talk about it enough today to just introduce it and hopefully uh, get us thinking in this direction. God modeled what I call hospitable communication in relationship to the collaborative community that he created in the beginning. The first thing it appears God does when he invites these human beings who he didn't need but wanted to join him in the environment of the garden was he set up regular meetings. He would meet with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Now, we don't know if this was a scheduled specific time, of course, we're trying to understand from what's said exactly what's going on in the text, but it appears that God regularly met with the man and the woman in order to be known by them and in order to know them. This form of communication came to be called prayer. And prayer, when properly understood, offers a beautiful take on effective communication, not only between God and people, but against people and people. Now let me offer you another definition. Let me define prayer for you. And I've adapted this definition from some work that Richard Foster did um, and and Dallas Willard and some others in the Renovere Study Bible, if you're interested. But this is my definition of prayer kind of adapted from some others' thoughts. I like to say that prayer is communication between a person and God about who they are, what they are thinking and feeling, and what we are doing and intend to do together. Now, I'll come back to that in a second. But, but, you know, a lot of times people think about prayer as we're just asking God for stuff. But prayer is the primary form of communication between God and humanity. And when we see the way that, that God interacted with human beings all through Scripture, and especially beginning in the garden where we learn so much about God's purpose, we see a, a, a well-rounded kind of holistic view of how God talked with and listened to human beings. So prayer is communication between a person and God about who they are, what they are thinking and feeling, and what we are doing and intend to do together. And I'm proposing that we should habitually practice this kind of communication with everyone we're in community with and trying to collaborate with. And especially if we're the leader of a thing, we should be championing this kind of communication. If we're a parent or a business owner, a coach, a teacher, a CEO, we must be communication champions. We must accept responsibility to make sure that this kind of communication is taking place throughout whatever entity we are leading. And this kind of communication, obviously, it's this reciprocal sharing. So it's just much about listening as it is talking. A lot of leaders think that they've communicated when they've said a thing. But in fact, communication, and I'm getting off track, and I need to not get off track today, but communication, as I write about on The Hospital leader at some length, is about sending and receiving signals. You haven't communicated because the signal was sent. You've communicated when the signal comes back and somebody says, I heard you, and they repeat back what they heard in a way that lets you know they really heard you. Well, anyway, this is I think that that, that, that applies to the way God relates with humanity. And I think that it's a model for how we should be in communication uh, interactions with others. Here's here's a beautiful uh, example of how God uh, communicated with his team all the way back in the garden. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. Again, why do human beings exist? Because God wanted people to join him in his work. And here's an assignment, a job description to Adam. I have you in the garden. I want you to work it and care for it. Now, that wasn't the extent of the job description. He also, with Eve, was to, was, to, was to procreate and was to spread the God image through the world and to turn the world into something that looked like the Garden of Eden. But that's a subject for another day. But I love this. God says, okay, Adam, I'm going to put you right here, and I want you to go to work and I want you to care for this. And then let's jump to verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. God, in the the way the story is told in Genesis, creates the animals... Brings them to Adam and he says, Adam, what do you want? To name them. And then it's as if God stands back, folds his arms across his chest to see what the man wanted. And whatever the man wanted, God said in this case, you know, under the umbrella of his purpose and what God was trying to do in the mission statement of the organization and all that kind of stuff, God wanted this guy to make decisions that expressed creativity, ideation, Uh, uh, something that brought demonstrated results. It mattered what the man said, in other words. And God let the man express what he wanted. Now listen, I could spend an hour teaching on that principle, except to say that this is part of what happens in hospitable communication. We don't bring people on our teams and then everything is about what we say to them and then they go do We bring people on our teams because we want to collaborate with them. We want them to bring their gifts, their ideas, their will, their thoughts, their feelings. And in order for us to be able to access those things, we've got to be able to learn how to ask questions. We've got to learn that communication is more about us telling them what we want. It's also us asking them what they want so that together we can create something beautiful. Wow. This is a great crowd of clappers. Thank you. So a hospitable leader is regular. It really does make me feel good when you acknowledge that I'm up here. So thank you. Even if it's a golf clap during football season, it's fine. I'll take it. So a hospitable leader is regularly asking the people we lead questions that essentially are like this. Who are you? What do you think? What are you feeling? What are you doing? What do you want to do? What do you intend to do? When you look at how God related with the man and the woman in the garden, he asked lots of questions. He wanted to know what they thought, what they wanted. Now, did he need their thoughts? Again, no. But he wanted, not robots, he wanted people who could bring who they were to his mission and help him do what he already wanted to do. Now, one other thing about this. A big part of hospitable leadership, then, is creating an environment where truth can be spoken and received. So, part of what you get when you adopt the posture of a hospitable leader and you want people to collaborate with, and then you adopt hospitable communication, where you really want to know who they are, what they think, what they want, et cetera, is that you hopefully are creating an environment where they're actually going to tell you. Which, frankly, my personality style, I'd much rather do the telling than be told. <laughs> but over the years, I've had to learn a different style of communication for all kinds of reasons, including some fails that I've had. With people in the past where I would ask the question, okay, what could I have done better here? How could I have made this work? What did I miss? This was a good person that, you know, we, we weren't able to make this thing work out. And, 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 and you know, you don't, if you're a wise leader, you're not saying, well, look at them. You're, you're, there may be part of that. But you're also saying, look at me. I'm the one who's trying to create a climate here that we're building something that we feel called to build. So nonetheless, I, 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 I say a lot of things at this time, at my age, that 20 years ago, I was just starting to grapple with, and it's taken me years to kind of work these things out and to get to the place where probably most of the time I'm actually practicing (laughs) what I'm teaching. I'm, I'm a human being like you are trying to figure this thing out. All right, what was I talking about? Oh. You create an environment like one of our staff values is reciprocal candor. In other words, I'm a truth teller. I don't have problems speaking truth. But I want to create an environment where the person I want to collaborate with can speak truth to me too. And the only way there can be growth in an individual or on a team is for truth to be spoken. Truth promotes growth. The Apostle Paul said that the truth must be spoken in love so that people can grow. And I love the idea of an organization so infused with love that the people in it love each other enough to speak truth but do it in a way where it can be well-received. And if truth is not spoken, there aren't any relationships you're involved in that will reach their potential. Your marriage will not experience the level of soul intimacy it's meant to experience. Your team will not function as well as it should, it should function, on and on and on and on and on. We have to be able to speak truth, but we have to speak truth. Now, the other problem is, are many times, truth-tellers are often not graceful people, Right? It's like, I'm going to tell you what I think, and if you don't like it, right? Well, then what happens? Well, you're not being a hospitable leader. You're being a jerk, right? So, so, so you have to learn to be like Jesus, who John said was full of grace and truth. We have to learn how to speak the truth in a way where it's received as love, and you say, how in the world do I learn how to do that? Well, read the rest of the book. Uh, I'm, I'm, I was, that was supposed to be funny. It wasn't that funny. So I wish I had more time to talk about that, but ultimately we are not hospitable to people if we're not speaking truth. Even, I would encourage you to go read the work of Henry Nowlin, the great Catholic priest, theologian, uh, uh, Harvard and Yale professor and author in his wonderful book, uh, Reaching In, Reaching Out, which is a kind of a seminal work on Christian hospitality, where he talks about how that both receptivity and confrontation are necessary in order to create In true environments of welcome where people are loving each other, speaking truth to one another so that we can influence one another. Anyway, again, subject for another time. Here's my third thought today. It's that hospitable leaders create environments of beauty that open people's hearts to more. Hospitable leaders create environments of beauty that open people's hearts to more. Now this is going to sound like a non-sequitur. It's going to sound like from the first two things I said that this does not follow. But what I want to say to you is I want to say that if you pay attention to the environment in which the collaboration you desire happens and the communication that you hope to put forward occurs, if you pay attention to the environment, collaborative effort and the communication necessary to be successful in it will be much easier. And will help connect what you're doing to something beyond the immediate thing you're doing but to something transcendent, something more. I like the potential of beauty to open people's hearts to things. Uh, there's this great story in the Gospel of John where Jesus has where Jesus cooks breakfast for Simon, Peter, and the other disciples. It's post-resurrection. Peter has failed. Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee. The guys are out fishing. And when they come to the shore, to make a long story short, he has prepared a beautiful breakfast. And when you read John 21 from the lens of good communication, you read it from the lens of good leadership, you read it from the lens of engaging a team member, reconciling with them, getting them back on the team, you see Jesus has prepared a breakfast and the descriptive language around it is beautiful. He's, he's prepared, there's fresh fish grilling on the grill. My mouth watered when I said that because it's already been a long day for me and I'm ready for lunch. Fresh, fi- fresh fish grilling on the grill, a charcoal fire uh, 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 fueling it. Um, there's warm bread, fresh bread being baked. When he, when they're done with breakfast, he takes a walk on the beach with Simon Peter. It's early morning. The sun has just risen. There's the sound of the sea against the the, 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 the beach. And it's, it's in this environment that Jesus has this, this very hospitable interaction with Peter where he, as hospitable leaders do, ask Peter, what do you feel? What do you think? Do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you really, really love me? And they have this, this encounter that ends up, changing Peter's life, re-engaging him to his destiny, and changing the destiny of the world. I just like the picture, though, of Jesus, first of all. Think about this. Jesus Christ cooking breakfast for this guy who failed him to get him back on the team. But he doesn't just cooking breakfast. He doesn't just slap something together. I mean, it's like there's a lot of planning here charcoal fire, the fresh fish. It sounds like a Zagat-rated restaurant. The, 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 the smell of the, the texture of the bread, the, the, the walk on the beach, the whole thing. It's a beautiful place in which to interact. Now, that just is a, is a word picture for me to make a, a larger point, which is to say that it shouldn't surprise us that God would choose a beautiful environment in which to have that kind of a conversation, from Eden forward, God has chosen beautiful places to meet with his people. The tabernacle, the temple, and that's not just an Old Testament thing. The early Christian church met regularly in the temple, which was a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, the created world itself, even God's decision to live in the, in, the, in the hearts of people who he made beautiful. God has chosen Beautiful environments again and again in which to engage human beings in the partnership he intended. I want to make a case as a part of a a discussion on communication to invest in beautiful things. Now again I know this sounds like a leap and kind of you know trying to put this into the amount of time that 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 I need to get this done in a sermon makes it a little more difficult than being able to write at length in a book about it but I'm going to tell you that if you create environments where people's hearts are warmed and open to something transcendent your attempt to to be heard and to hear will be greatly enhanced. Beauty is integral to hospitable communicative environments. Beauty again creates a climate that opens people's hearts to more than what can be physically sensed. Abraham Heschel said that beautiful art, for instance, introduces us to emotions which we have never cherished before. He writes, "Great works of art produce rather than satisfy needs by giving the world fresh cravings in other words when you're standing and looking at some beautiful thing it opens your heart to wonder and ultimately if followed home it points to God who is beautiful and to the good things that God does Some of the greatest minds in history make the point that we are more receptive to what can be communicated about God in the presence of the beautiful. For instance, French physicist and uh, theologian Pascal um, said that every man is almost always led to believe not through proof but through that which is attractive. The great C.S. Lewis explained part of his journey to faith as a longing to, quote, find the place where all the beauty came from. An environment infused with beauty is an environment where people are more likely to pay attention to whatever is being communicated. And I think this is not only true concerning God, but anything true and good. Any leader can invest in beauty in any leadership context knowing that the people we are trying to lead are more receptive to our efforts to influence them in an appealing setting. I submit. That when we grasp the power of beauty, we will spare no possible effort or cost to do beautiful things. When we feature created beauty or create beauty ourselves, we are practicing a hospitality rooted in God himself. Now, part of this is a pet peeve of mine. It's to say that hospitable leaders are not primarily utilitarian. We are not Use the quickest, most efficient, least expensive way to get it done, and it doesn't matter what it looks like, sounds like, feels like, tastes like, or smells like kind of people. We are people who try to create environments of welcome, and part of the way we do this is we, we invest in creating beautiful places where people's hearts are inclined to open more to whatever you're trying to communicate. And this is, you know, I I say that because I see a lot of people who they'll, you know, they'll try to find the cheapest way to do the meeting. Now, when you're in a situation like we are, you're always on a tight budget. And one of our uh, uh, key gifts around here is that we've learned how to do things that are as nice as as, as, possible. We've learned how to do things often beautifully at the least expensive price point you could possibly imagine. We've never had money to throw at a thing, but we've we we sometimes you have to work really hard to say how do we get to the end result of making this really special. We're going to have a a, a a you know uh, the first weekend of December here. We'll have a as an example and another classic example of me getting sidetracked and preaching longer than I should. We're going to have a great big blowout Christmas event for all of our volunteers here at TLCC. If you're volunteering here, you'll be hearing about it. Somehow or another, we'll figure out a cost-effective way to do something that creates a really special environment because when you do that for one thing you're saying to somebody we care about you we prepared for you we've planned for this we didn't just say hey let's talk we fixed a charcoal fire with fresh fish and warm bread and we did it on the beach and the sun was shining and we talked about things that changed our lives forever see i think it's god saying i could have just put the man and woman any place but i put them in eden i could have just you know put a tent in the wilderness but i had the most beautiful tent in the history of the world built because that's the kind of place where I want to meet with people. And I'm just saying that hospitable leaders, if they're smart, invest in creating environments that warm people's hearts and open them to more. And the most beautiful beautiful thing is beauty ultimately leads people to God. This is one of the ways, by the way, in a secular setting, where you're not allowed to, you know, speak truth, capital T, can't talk about Jesus, you can still provide settings where people connect to the transcendent. And one of the secrets is beauty, without people even realizing it, beauty opens people's heart to God and the transcendent because God, one of the names for God in scripture and one of his chief attributes is beauty. So when there's something reflected beauty here, it tells us something about God. Let me make a final point and I'm finished. You guys okay? I'm up here talking so fast I'm out of breath. It's like, I need to go get some fresh fish or something. Let's say it like this. Secondary beauty leads to primary beauty which leads to ultimate beauty now where i'm going to finish here is i want us to focus our attention on god who is beautiful let me tell you where i want to end this up in about three or four minutes i'm going to say that when we focus on god who is beautiful it becomes now more natural for us to experience primary beauty which i'm about to describe and to create secondary beauty so secondary beauty has to do with something that exists in the created world, something God created or something that a human being made in God's image created, a sunset, uh, a beautiful painting, um, a a, a stunning work of architecture. a human being can look at something like that and say that it 's beautiful, but it 's a subjective beauty. One person may say it 's beautiful, and to someone else that painting may not be beautiful, but it would be called a secondary beauty. I actually uh, 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 saw this from the great the, the, the person who, who who taught me this is the great theologian uh, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards called. Beauty that exists in the created world secondary beauty. Physical beauty, though, he wrote, points beyond itself to a deeper and more foundational kind of beauty. The beauty found in the consent and agreement among spiritual beings. This primary beauty involves one whole being to be beautiful. For example, two people falling in love is beautiful. Now, I'll come back to that. But even this is not the highest beauty. The highest beauty is ultimate beauty which is found in God who is beautiful and the source of all beauty. So to demonstrate, a secondary beauty. Um, I think everything about, this is kind of an odd way to say this, but I think everything about going to a baseball game at Yankee Stadium is beautiful. Now, we could talk about a lot deeper things, but this is what came to mind, okay? The stadium is beautiful. I like the cut of the grass. I like to smell the popcorn. I like the sound of the vendors. I like to hear the crack of the ball against the bat, the pop of the ball against the glove. I like the whole experience. If you're a Mets fan, I know you don't understand much of what I'm talking about. But a visit to Yankee Stadium is beautiful. But you may disagree with me about that, which is part of the reason we know that that's secondary beauty. There's, somebody might think that that's beautiful, the stadium's beautiful, the grass is beautiful, and someone else may not. But let's talk about the day that Yankee chaplain Willie Alfonso invited me and my daughter, Summer, to sit with him and some other leaders in a suite at Yankee Stadium to watch a game one day. Now my daughter could care less about baseball. She doesn't care about baseball at all. But we sat there and we talked and we laughed and we ate and we had fun and we didn't pay much attention to the game, just a dad and his daughter being engaged in a relationship with one another. Whether you're a Red Sox fan, a Mets fan, or a Yankee fan, or hate baseball, you think that's beautiful, don't you? That's primary beauty, see. A sunset, secondary beauty, even though it was created by God, secondary beauty. But a couple walking on the beach holding hands, looking at the sun go down, that's primary beauty. But then ultimate beauty is that that couple holding hands on the beach, opens their heart unknowingly in that beautiful place, not just to one another, but to something that's of mystery and beyond even the consent of two human beings to love one another. Do you understand? So secondary beauty leads to primary beauty and opens us to ultimate beauty. Conversely, I would say, ultimate beauty, God, when we focus on him, it becomes more natural and normative for us to experience primary beauty and to more naturally create secondary beauty. How can you be in relationship with the ultimately beautiful and that beauty not show up in your relationships? and that beauty not show up in the way that you're decorating the entryway to your business. Ultimate beauty, primary beauty, secondary beauty. God created beautiful environments in which to meet with his people. And when we're wise, we pay attention to the way God does the things he does the things he does. And we try to do them that way. So there's this great passage In 2 Corinthians 3, where the Apostle Paul said, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. Now I know I've said a lot, but let me just sum this part up by saying this. Paul's essentially saying, when we look at God, when we contemplate Him, when we're in relationship with Him, we are transformed into His image. We become like Him with ever increasing glory. When we focus, guys, on God's beauty, we become more beautiful. And we are inclined in every other sphere of life to produce things that are beautiful and good.